Let's take our Bibles and we'll turn first to Matthew 18. A classic text, classic parable that helps unpack what we'll be talking about as we work our way near the end of our summer series looking at the Lord's Prayer. Tonight getting to that fifth petition. Uh, First Matthew 18, then we'll return to Matthew chapter 6. Beginning in verse 23, Jesus speaking here. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payments to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him that debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debts. So also, my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Let's turn to Matthew chapter 6. For our sermon text in verse 9. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. The grass withers, the flower fades. This is the word of our Lord and it stands forever. It's been the tradition in many countries and states that an inmate on death row is... Uh, permitted a last meal of their choosing before their execution. Often inmates take this opportunity to um, indulge in a guilty pleasure, uh, something like a bucket of KFC or four Big Macs, two pints of ice cream. I guess that brings new meaning to the term guilty pleasure. Um, And yet, one has to wonder, even if they're getting their favorite junk food or their favorite meal, they're allowed whatever they want in certain Systems, do you think it's a meal they actually enjoy? Do you think they could actually enjoy um, a single bite of that final meal? And I think the answer is, well, of course not. Why not? Well, because uh, the, the threat that is looming over them, the terrors of eternity that are assaulting their soul, overcome the pleasure 
that their taste buds might afford on any other occasion. And it's a lesson that we all need to learn, and hopefully we learn it off of death row. And that lesson is this, that the temporal affairs of this world mean nothing, mean nothing when we don't have our eternity secured. Or we could put it this way. Give us this day our daily bread means nothing if we can't say my debts have been forgiven. And so that's why the Puritan Thomas Watson says, Christ joins this petition of forgiveness of sin immediately to the other of daily bread. Notice that there's no break in the sentence. There's just a comma there. They go together, as it were. And he says, Christ does this to show us that though we have daily bread, yet all is nothing without forgiveness. If our sins be not pardoned, we can take little comfort in our food. And so this leads us to the first of two things I I want us to consider tonight. Why we need to pray this prayer. That's the first thing. Why we need to pray this. And the first answer is simply what, what, what Watson is getting at. That without this prayer being prayed earnestly, without having that, that interchange with, with God as judge, you have nothing. If you have not forgiveness, you have nothing. That's why we need to pray this prayer. Our very life lies in getting pardon. Sin is... Now, a problem for a whole host of reasons, we understand that. But Jesus helpfully frames the ultimate issue that, that sin draws out when he uses this Greek word, uh, ophelema, as a stand-in for sin. It's the word that is translated as debt. Ophelema means something owed. And this is our real problem. Do you know that? This is the problem that you have before God. You owe him. And you cannot pay him. There's a debt. That's the issue. We, why are we indebted to God? Well, we're indebted to God because of the laws that we have broken. We're indebted to the, God because of the laws that we haven't kept. We're indebted to God because we haven't been able to pay the penalty for those various infractions. And so that means that the problem between us and God isn't so much sin. Sin is a... Don't mis, nobody misquote me on that. Don't tweet that either. Sin is a problem between us and God, but it's not the ultimate problem because what? Why? Because God provided a means of atonement. When one would sin, their sin could be paid for. What's the problem we actually have? It's not that we have sin. It's that we can't pay for our sin. That's your ultimate problem. You are in debt to God. If you've ever been in any sort of financial debt, you know that it's a miserable condition. Uh, Maybe... You're on some sort of payment plan for a medical bill or something like that. And just every month it rolls around and I just wish I didn't have to pay this. Or a student loan maybe. And you just feel how my life could be so much more free. I'd have so much more options and and, um, possibilities if if this chunk of money wasn't taken every month because I'm indebted to uh, this loan officer or, or whatnot. We're fraught with fears and anxieties. They seem to suck the life out of us when... When we are in debt, and yet sin is a far worse debt, and it's the worst kind imaginable. Well, Thomas Watson tells us why. He gives several reasons in his book, um, uh, Body of Divinity. He says, for one thing, it's the worst debt because we have nothing to pay. If we could pay the debt, what need to pray? Forgive us. But we can pay neither principal nor interest. Adam has made us all bankrupts. Second, he says it's the worst debt because it's against an infinite majesty. Third, because it's not a single debt, but multiple debts. 
right? Notice, forgive us our debts, plural. He says, we may as well reckon all the drops in the sea as reckon all our spiritual debts. We could never tell how much we owe. And then finally, he says, it's the worst debt because if left unpaid, it carries men to a far worse prison than anything here on earth. A debtor's prison, is, it was a common thing in the, the days of Jesus. Most people in prison were in prison because they owed and they couldn't pay. They were in debtor's prison. And yet the debtor's prison for you and me, when we're in debt to God, is nothing short of hell. That's why this is the worst debt imaginable. And so you see why you need to pray this prayer of forgiveness. I, could, I think we could put it this way, friends. The beginning of your forever is in asking for forgiveness. If you want any hope of eternity, it begins with, forgive me my debts. You owe God something you cannot pay, and he's keeping a record of of your infractions of what you owe. And Revelation tells us one day the book's going to be opened. God will, will open that book, and what will he see when he turns to your account? Well, there's only two options. Either he'll see that there is payment due, or he will see paid in full by the blood of Christ. What will he see when he turns to your ledger on that day? The the gospel promises us that Jesus can and he will pay our debts. This is what Paul writes in Colossians. You who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling what? The record of debt that stood against us. And he nailed it to the cross. The record of debt in the Greek is actually the word for what we would say an IOU. An IOU. A certificate. It's a certificate of indebtedness. Something that somebody would give a person that says, yes, I owe you and I can't pay right now, but I'll I'll make good on it one day. That's what we do when we sin. It's as though we're writing God uh, this this. Um, long list of IOUs. Yes, I sinned. I, I broke your law. I owe you. I must pay for that, but I can't. I'll, I'll make good on it eventually. That's what we do when we sin. And on that last day, you know what God's going to do? He's going to bring out all those IOUs we've written in our life because of our sin. It's going to be, uh, it's not just a handful, but it's going to be the stack that goes from the ceiling up and, or from the floor up through the ceiling. What are you going to do on that day? What will you do at that moment? We all but despair if it were not for the fact that Jesus Christ came and he said to the Father, whatever he owes, whatever she owes. Do you know what he says? It's in Philemon, actually. Let's turn to Philemon real quick. I wasn't planning on doing this, but this is one of my favorite books of the Bible because it's so different. What's Philemon doing in our Bibles? Right before Hebrews. Why does this book exist? It's not Paul writing to a church. He's writing to an individual. And it's not about church matters. It's about a personal situation. This runaway slave. He's writing this kind of letter of recommendation. What are we to make of this? What's it here for? And I would posit to you, friends, that Philemon exists at least for this reason. So that you would understand what Christ is willing to do to pay your debts. 
we're given a picture in the life of Paul of what Christ is doing for us and has done for us. Look with me at verse 18. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of you owing me your own self. Uh, Friends, I want you to look at those verses now and, and see them in a new light. This is not Paul writing. This is Jesus writing to the Father, as it were, saying about you, if he has wronged you, O Father, at all, charge it to my account. I, Jesus, write this in my own blood. His blood is what cancels out our record of debt. How do you get the blood of Christ? How can you get that that payment? How can your, your account say paid in full? You pray this prayer. Forgive me my debts. The blood of Christ, far more precious than gold or silver, has been poured out to clear, cancel, and to erase our debts before God. So we need to pray this. The beginning of our forever is in this prayer. Well, then maybe you say, well, yes, that's all well and good, Pastor, but I've already done that. I have been forgiven. My debts have been paid. Why do I still need to pray this petition? I'm a Christian, after all. Why, why should I keep drudging up my mistakes and my missteps before a God who told me I'm justified and I, my sins have been covered by the blood of Christ? Well-meaning Christians ask this question a lot. In fact, some people think it's odd, if, it's not, if not downright wrong, that, that we in our church have uh, a regular time of confession of sin. That's, that strikes some Christians as strange. Why, why do I need to address this? I, haven't I been justified? And interestingly, our catechism, if you notice, it says one of the reasons we say this prayer, forgive us our debts, is to acknowledge even not just the sins we've committed today or, or yesterday or tomorrow, but, but our original sin, just the fact that we're fallen creatures. It's right that Christians acknowledge this. Why? Why should born-again Christians still confess regularly before God? And the reason is because God's not only our judge, but he's our father, too. He's our father, too. Our guilt has been dealt with once and for all at the cross, and, and that act has brought us into God's family and this loving and this, this intimate relationship now demands our confession all the more than before. If you think that now that you're a Christian, you have God as your father and Christ as your mediator, you don't need to confess your sin, you're getting it all backwards. You're missing the point. And parents in the room know why this is. You know that there's nothing, nothing that your children could do that would make you not love them or that would make you reject them forever. There's, there's no mistake they could make in which you would not say, I still love you. And yet, even though that's true, you still expect an I'm sorry when they've hurt you. And boys and girls, you should understand that it's the very fact that your parents love you no matter what, that you have every reason to run to them and to ask for, the, your for, uh, for forgiveness when you do wrong because you know they'll grant it. And so part of, part of why Christians must still say this prayer, part of the reason is that because it causes us to relate to God as a father, one in whom uh, we desire to please Well, there's a final reason why we need to pray this prayer, and that is not just our ability to relate between God as a judge or God as Father, but also our ability and our need to relate to one another. Jesus says, forgive us our debts as we forgive 
our debtors. There's something that's horizontal about this prayer. There's something that's relational about this prayer, not just a vertical, not just spiritual in that sense, but something has to do with, with, with our interactions with others. It almost sounds, though, like our forgiveness with God is contingent or dependent upon our forgiveness of others. As though this prayer is saying, you need to forgive me my debts because I forgave other people. Or the, the reverse of that, if I haven't forgiven other people, you won't forgive me. Is that how we understand the gospel, that it's contingent upon our performance or what we do? No, no, no. That's not how it works. So how are we to understand this? Uh, the point is that our ability to forgive others, our ability to forgive others, can only come from a heart that has already been transformed by the forgiveness of Christ. As our hearts are softened more and more to extend love and to mercy, and mercy to those who do not deserve it, those people who have hurt or offended us, we are given greater confidence that God's in, at work in our hearts. It's as though we can say, the only reason I've ever forgiven somebody is because I'm starting to get it. It's starting to click. God has forgiven me. And that's why our catechism says... We have all the more reason, or we're encouraged or emboldened, we have all the more reason to expect God will hear this prayer because we're forgiving others. In other words, I know God will forgive me my debts. Why? Because I've forgiven other people, and the only reason I forgive other people is because God has already forgiven me my debts. Do you see the logic? I don't have to pray this with trepidation. Maybe he won't answer. No, I look at my life, it's imperfect, but I see a work of grace there. And that has come from the fact that God has already answered the prayer I'm about to make. Forgive me my debts. The forgiveness of the gospel has already been applied to the Christian's heart. And so, here's what the Shorter Catechism says. We are rather encouraged to ask for forgiveness because by his grace, we are enabled from the heart to forgive others. And so there's a serious question for us tonight, though. And you need to do some soul searching. Do you have trouble articulating this prayer? Does this, does this, this prayer, at least the second half of it, does it get caught in your throat? Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Do you have an issue saying it? Or when you say it, do the faces of people that you have refused to forgive in your past, do they come uh, to the fore of your mind? If you cannot say the second half of this petition, the first part falls to the ground, according to Sinclair Ferguson. He says, the two are inseparably linked. For the man who knows his debt before God and turns to him for forgiveness is the recipient of such grace that he cannot but share it with others. And so, if you feel like you can't say this genuinely, as I forgive others, it's not that God's forgiveness is conditional upon that. It's the fact that perhaps you haven't yet received that forgiveness. Perhaps your heart hasn't yet been changed. If that prayer gets caught in your throat, you have trouble articulating it, then you have some can we say, bigger problems to deal with. You need to get right with God. You need to be made right with God. And we recognize that, that when we're made right with God vertically, it does transform the horizontal relationship that we have with others. And forgiveness is a requisite for relationships. You can't have relationships if there's no forgiveness. Think about it. How could you ever function in a household, in a marriage, um, at school, in a neighborhood? You can, oh, the, the, the list can go on. How can you handle any of these things? Certainly a church. How can you live in a church 
if you cannot forgive. Zacharias or Sinus says forgiveness in this petition means we won't seek revenge. Forgiveness in this sense means that I'm giving up my right to hurt you because you hurt me. If we're not willing to do that, we won't have any friends. We, we will not be able to function in society if we're not willing to let go of these things. We need to pray this prayer because our relationship with others depends upon it. That's why we need to pray this prayer. We've seen several things there because our relationship between God between us and God as a judge depends on it, between us and God as a father depends upon it, and between one another. It depends on the ability to pray this prayer and to live out its meaning. And so, we need to pray it, but that's easier said than done. To admit wrong is to wound ego, says one pastor. Everything in us fights against uh, the notion of confessing wrongs. It just doesn't just doesn't seem right. It seems wrong to do it. Uh, but that's not true. We're wrong. That's, that's the real problem, after all. And so we would be helped greatly in our prayer life, not simply uh, by knowing that we need to pray for forgiveness. I, I imagine most of us here in the room knew that already before you came. Uh, but I think we'd be helped in our prayer life if we knew beyond that uh, if beyond that, beyond knowing that we need to pray, if we could understand that we actually deep down want to pray this prayer. Uh, we need to re- recalibrate our affections and recognize that there's something truly good and desirable about honest and open confession before God, about forgiving others and, and asking for forgiveness of others and, and of God. And so what I want to do in closing tonight is I, I want to inspire you to pray this prayer. I want you to want to pray this prayer for your own good and to see that that there's actually something beautiful about what Jesus is offering us here. So let me offer you uh, four reasons why we should want to pray this petition. We had reasons for why we need to, but four reasons why we should want to. First, this petition restores our view of God. We should want to pray this prayer because it will restore our vision of God, our understanding of God. A.W. Tozer once wrote that what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Let me say that again. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Why is that? Well, he goes on to argue that we tend by a secret law of the soul to move towards our mental image of God. So what do you think of when you think of God? What is your mental image of God? Does he have a frown? Are his arms crossed or are his arms open wide, ready to receive you and to welcome you? Jesus tells us to pray this prayer, asking God to forgive us. Why? Because God wants to forgive us. He loves to forgive us. Uh, We don't pray this petition in vain. It is one, it's a prayer that God always, always, always answers in the affirmative. When we ask for forgiveness, he never says No, he never says maybe, he never says I'll get back to you. He always says, because of Christ Jesus, yes, I forgive you. Grace and mercy and pardon are natural to God. Psalm 130, verse 4, with you there is forgiveness. Forgiveness belongs to God, it's natural to him. Or Nehemiah 9, 17, but you are a God ready to forgive 
Is that your understanding of who God is? Does that square with your mental image of God? Friends, the more you ask God to forgive you and the more you receive the same, the more you will believe it's what he's all about. And the better you know God, the better your life will go. The better your life will be. Think about it. If you are, if you are um, inordinately angry or inordinately jealous or anxious or depressed or fearful... At bottom, the reason is because you are, at some point in the, along the line, you're losing sight of the God who has opened himself up to you. There is nothing more practical, more important than knowing who God is. J.I. Packer talks about in the opening of, of knowing God, that if you don't know him, you sense yourself to stumble and blunder through life blindfolded, as it were, with no sense of direction, no understanding of what is around you. This way, that is the way of not knowing God, is a surefire way to waste your life. In other words, nothing screws up your life more than than misunderstanding God. Here we learn that forgiveness is most natural to him, which is the most freeing thing of all to learn. That the God that you serve, the God you believe in, the God you pray to, he's not a God with a frown. A God who is ready and eager to forgive. That'll change your life if you don't recognize that. If you don't understand the heart of God, I dare say that will change your life. So you should want to pray this petition. Second, we want to pray it because it not only restores our view of God, but it relieves the burden of guilt. David recognized that in Psalm 32. He saw that confession is, it's a way of life. And to abstain from confession was like uh, dying a slow, painful, torturous death. You remember what he says there in Psalm 32. When I kept silent, my bones, what? They wasted away. I was groaning all the time. He says, your hand is heavy upon me. You feel the the burden. Silence over sin will mean suffering. But the moment we open our hearts and our mouths and confess our guilt, we receive healing. And that's what David found out as well. He says, I acknowledge my sin to you. And you forgave my iniquity. How many people in the world are suffering spiritual, emotional, mental distress because they're carrying with them unconfessed sin? Decades ago, famed American psychiatrist Carl Menninger is purported to have said, I could dismiss half my patients tomorrow. He was uh, the head of a a famous uh, psychiatric hospital. He said, I could dismiss half my patients tomorrow if they could be assured of forgiveness. And so, to regularly pray this petition, to believe it, to absorb it, that our God is a forgiving God, not only does it help us understand who he is, it relieves the burden of guilt. And without that relief, your life will be, I dare say it, miserable. Third, this petition Uh, not only relieves us from the burden of guilt, it also releases us from the prison of bitterness. As we've seen uh, from that second half of the petition, as we forgive others, the whole point is that when we recognize and rejoice in the fact that God is a forgiving God, we will forgive others. We'll more eagerly forgive others. What's the other option? If you're not used to praying this prayer, and if you don't live out this prayer, what's the other option? If you're not ready to forgive others, there's really only one. It's to live a sad, pathetic, 
embittered life. Bitterness is the other option. Now, we've seen how, how Jesus pictures for us forgiveness as, as being released from debtor's prison. Right? The debt has been forgiven. We've, we've been set free. Do you know what happens when you refuse to forgive someone else? And there's probably a whole sermon on this too. So I just want to say an aside real quickly. When I talk about forgiving others, I'm talking about an exchange between two parties where somebody acknowledges sin and asks for forgiveness and the other party grants it. I don't mean... A sort of personal thing you do just in your heart of hearts, I've forgiven them, and there's actually never been any sort of exchange with the two parties. We should have a disposition ready to forgive people, even if they don't ask for it. But forgiveness, rightly, properly understood, doesn't happen unless it's asked for. And God does not forgive us unless we repent. So when I talk now about being ready to forgive others or forgiving others. I'm not talking about just something that you do secretly, privately. They have no idea you've done it. I'm talking about, about this, this conversation, a hard one that takes place where somebody confesses, acknowledges sin, or you, you bring up sin and you acknowledge it and you say, you need to ask for forgiveness and, and I'm ready to grant it. That's what we're talking about here. But like I said, that could be a whole other sermon. So forgiveness is pictured as releasing somebody from debtor's prison. What happens if you refuse to forgive somebody? If they come to you and and they ask for forgiveness and you refuse to grant it, or you don't even internally have a disposition ready to forgive when they come, whenever that may be. Do you know what happens? It's not this that you leave them in prison. It's you lock yourself up with them. You imprison yourself. Uh, The word for forgiveness in Greek comes from the word to let go. It is the letting go, not just of somebody else's debt, but of all sorts of self-destructive emotions like resentment and self-entitlement and bitterness. You want that gone from your life. You want to pray this prayer. During the rise of the Me Too movement, there was a journalist, Danielle Barron. She wrote an article titled, uh, this was for the New York Times, and it was titled, Should We Forgive the Men Who Have Assaulted Us? An interesting article, to say the least. But one of the comments on the online version, the New York Times, captured the reaction that most people had to the very notion of forgiving uh, men who are guilty of sexual assault. This is what one person wrote. Forgiveness is overrated. It heals neither the body or the mind. Let the criminal ask his gods, if there be any, for forgiveness, instead of talking about how victims must forgive. So this commenter says, forgiveness is overrated. And then she says, it heals neither the body or the mind. What do you think of that assertion? Is that true? Does forgiveness not have a sort of healing, curative power? Ask yourself, when you think of somebody or perhaps see somebody, uh, run into them at the the store or something like that, uh, whom you have not forgiven, uh, maybe you thought you had, but when you see them, uh, you realize you hadn't. How do you know? Well, because of the emotions that begin to arise when you encounter them. Uh, the, the blood pressure starts to rise. Maybe the heart starts beating. And, uh, and memories, past memories of their, the way they hurt you come flooding back. And, and let's just be honest, if that's ever happened to you, I'm sure it has, it's kind of ruined the rest of the day. You weren't planning on it. You didn't want to run into to, you know, um, 
uh, Joe at the, at the grocery store, but you did, and now your day's ruined. Why? Because you're still bitter, resentful. You haven't forgiven. Friend, if you are in the prison of bitterness, the key that opens the cell is forgiveness. And you unlock it with these words, forgive me my debts as I forgive even my debtors. Would it be too much to say that this prayer is the secret to your mental and emotional well-being? I do not think so. I do not think so. Finally, we've seen how this prayer, we should want this prayer because it restores our understanding of God. It relieves the burden of guilt, releases us from the prison of bitterness. But finally, I want you to see that this prayer, when you live it out, it actually realizes a better world than the one we're in. It, It creates, it cultivates a better world than the one we're in. In recent decades, one expression that the abandonment of, of morals, of morality in general has taken is this thing that we now call cancel culture. Uh, we realize that ours is an inquisitorial age, uh, one that seems to almost relish in condemning others. Students uh, oust their professors. Activist groups work to silence differing opinions. Social media mob stands at the ready to to descend upon the latest societal offenders. It's almost like it's fun. But what kind of world has this created? It creates a world of fear, of endless anxiety, unrest, because people are constantly fretting, what if I'm next? What if I say the wrong thing? There's no confidence that people will understand or will give me a second pass or, or will forgive me. No, it's the end. If the infraction is, is great enough. Uh, this world that, that we live in is one that works perfectly for the perfect, but not for sinners. And so, is there a refuge for people like you and me? Uh, people who aren't perfect. People that will make mistakes. And blessedly there is, and it's called the church. Constituted by our free pardon received in the gospel, the church is nothing if not a community of forgiveness. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as Christ, as God in Christ forgave you. Ephesians 4, 32. Our, our, our ethic is based on being forgiven. And so if we as a church do not forgive, then we're no different from the world. But what we need in the church is a society that is so different from the world, that operates on different principles than the world, because the, the operative principles of this world are exhausting and they're terrifying. But when we pray this petition, and when we live out its meaning and its message, that we believe in a forgiving God, and therefore we have become forgiving people, we create a community that looks a lot more like heaven than earth. And you want that. You want that. And when we live as a forgiving community, not only is that a blessing for us, But it's a wonderful shop window for the rest of the world. There is a story of the terrible massacre in Charleston, South Carolina, several years ago, when uh, the 
um, young man went to the prayer meeting at the Methodist church and, and killed, I think it was over a dozen people. And yet each one of their family members, when it came time to the sentencing and the um, impact statements, each one of these believers who had lost their family members, one after the next, said they forgave this murderer. And there was a reporter, I forget for what uh, news outlet, but he was there, and he tweeted, Now, I am not a Christian, but what just happened in Charleston is a wonderful advertisement for Christianity. There was something attractive about forgiveness. What was attractive to that journalist? He was seeing in the church a world that was so much better than the world he lived in. Friends, Pray this prayer. Ask the Lord for forgiveness day in and day out. You need it. And it will transform your heart to forgive others day in and day out. And they'll need it. And when we can commit to praying this petition, it will transform our lives and it will create here in the church something that's so better than we could ever find out in the world. Praise God for that. Let's pray. Our Father, we're sinners. We, we acknowledge that. We make mistakes. We hurt people. We offend people. We say the wrong thing. We, we're so weak. And if our lives were, and our future was based upon our performance, we would have no hope. We're grateful, though, to know that with you, Forgiveness is found. And you're a God who is abounding in steadfast love and mercy. You overflow with it. Would we be people who are ready to confess our faults so that we could learn more of this forgiving character of yours? And would that make us people who are ready to ask for forgiveness of others and to grant the very same would this be a powerful way in which we could witness to the world? We, we acknowledge in our, in our selfishness, in our pride, confession is hard. It wounds the ego. And yet we have seen tonight that it is abundantly good. Teach us that. Uh, draw our affections to the, the inherent good, uh, the inherent beauty of living a life of frequent confession and, and forgiveness. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.